But we're approaching Passover, and we're approaching Good Friday, and, and uh, Resurrection Sunday, and, and eventually Pentecost. And as we are approaching that, I, I, I want to reflect on some of the things that Jesus said on his way to Jerusalem. This last trip to Jerusalem that he made, he knew very well what it meant. In fact, he told his disciples, this is what it means. He told them straight up, when I go to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen. We talked about that last week when he set his face toward Jerusalem. It wasn't just, well, Jerusalem, every now and then we go for the feast. Let's be there for Passover, and maybe we'll witness to some people. Maybe we'll get to teach in the temple. No, he knew this time to Jerusalem, this is the time I die. And when he set his face towards that city, he said some things as he observed the city. And it made me think about, and, and, and in my time of prayer preparing for this, just thinking about all the times that Jesus stood back and looked at a city or stood back and looked at people. Much of what we read about Jesus is him in the midst of ministry, is him ministering to people or teaching his disciples. But every now and then he takes a step back and he observes and he, he talks, he tells his disciples, he lets them in on what he's seeing. There were a couple of times he, as he set his face toward Jerusalem, he spoke of what this was going to mean and, and of what he felt towards Jerusalem. In Luke 19, we find him right on the edge as he's going over the Mount of Olives and he looks down at the city of Jerusalem. And I want you to see what he says in verse 41. When Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Of course, this came to pass in a very real way in only a few decades from the time he said it. There's a man, a Roman general named Vespasian, um, that had been sent by the emperor to crush a rebellion, Jewish rebellion that had arisen. And uh, Vespasian came, and he fought for a while. And these rebels were pretty tough, and they hunkered down, and they got in the towers, and, and they, they, they waged guerrilla warfare, made it very difficult for the Romans. Eventually, Vespasian was called back to Rome. He became emperor. There was, this was kind of the season where all the emperors were, there was, there was great unrest, and, and uh, uh, Emperors were being killed left and right. Assassinations weren't uncommon. Uh, military coups. And Vespasian, as a general, had uh, the military forces. So Vespasian was called back. His son Titus took over. And in AD 70, Titus laid these very siege weapons that Jesus is talking about against the city of Jerusalem. Weapons that would, you know, siege towers that would enable the soldiers to get on the wall. Barricades. People inside were starving. And when the Romans finally broke through, they began to set things on fire. They were warned by their commanders not to touch the temple. Don't touch the temple. It's holy. We can win these people back, but not if we destroy their temple. But as the flames began to lick around the city, some of the flames hit the stones of the temple. And in, when those flames began to lick, something began to happen. The flames began to cause gold between the bricks to melt. The soldiers saw it and said, we want that gold. Not one stone was left upon another. The city was destroyed. To this day, some of those things are ex excavated. You can see where they were, but nothing was what it was before. Jesus' response to a city that's going to kill him in a few days is to weep. Not to weep for himself. He's not sad he's going to have to die for him. He's not saying, I can't believe I have to die for you guys that hate me. It's not fair. Lord, why are you making me do this? No, he weeps for them because he wants them to have peace. And he realizes that they've missed it. He's not naive. Doesn't think he's going to march in. And suddenly Jerusalem's all of a sudden going to love him. He knows when I go, they're going to hate me. When I go, the very people that have studied their whole life about me, the people that have devoted themselves to service of me are going to kill me. 
They've tried before, and they failed because nobody can kill Jesus unless Jesus wants to die. Right? I tried to throw him over a cliff. He walks through the crowd. Tried to catch him at the feast. He doesn't let himself be seen until he wants to be seen. Even when they come to arrest him, he knocks him down two times just to show them, you don't take my life, I lay it down. And yet, and yet, he knows that this place is so full of deception and darkness that they're going to do this thinking they're doing God a favor. He said it to his disciples, the day will come when they'll persecute you and think they're doing it for me. They'll think they're doing it for God. That's the ironic and, and cruel thing about it is they think they're doing a service to God. Paul said, I was of zeal. I had more zeal than anyone. I, I used it to persecute the church. He said, I was so zealous religiously. I was such a religious zealot that I was persecuting the very thing I was looking for. Thank God. God got his attention. But I, go back a few chapters to Luke 13, and there's another moment when he speaks about Jerusalem, when he reflects as he's headed that direction, not too long from there. In Luke 13, 22, he was passing through one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. Read between the lines, guys. On his way to Jerusalem means on his way, eventually, to where he'll die. Eventually, to where he'll rise again. And eventually to where he'll send his spirit. It was Jerusalem that all this happens. Someone said to him, Lord, there are just a few who are being saved. And he said, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Skip on down to verse 31. Read, go home and read the rest because that's really important. But for the sake of time, I'm going to skip to 31. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached saying to him, go away. Leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And I don't know if these Pharisees are on his side, because some of them were. Nicodemus was a Pharisee that was on his side. Joseph of Arimathea was a Pharisee on his side. Some of these Pharisees believed. Some of them were secret believers. They, they liked him, but they didn't want to, you know, like him in public because they'd lose their job. So they were secret about it. But maybe these also, maybe these Pharisees just wanted him to get out of town, right? And maybe they're just saying, well, this is true, but we're going to scare him off with it. So they said, go away from here, for Herod's trying to kill you. And he says, go and tell that fox. Behold, I, or pay attention, I cast out demons and I perform cures today. And tomorrow and the third day I reach my goal. I'm going to cast out evil spirits. I'm going to heal people today. But tomorrow, in other words, in front of me, and then on the third day I reach my goal. My goal is to go there and die. And my goal on the third day is to go and rise. So, Herod, you don't get to call the shots. You're not the boss of me. You're not, you're not telling me what's going to happen. I don't make my plans based on what Herod's doing or what he's thinking. Go tell that fox this is what I'm doing. Isn't that wonderful that Jesus doesn't allow himself to be swayed by a king trying to show that he's got backbone? Herod desperately trying to hang on to the people's approval. Jesus says, go tell that guy. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And right now, I'm here to heal people. I'm here to deliver people. But, but know this. My goal is to go there and die and on the third day rise again. Now, he doesn't tell that whole part to Herod. But everybody else notices third day. What's important about that? He goes on and he says, nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day. For it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. He's being a little, a little bit sarcastic, a little bit funny here. Doesn't sound funny, but he's saying, I mean, come on, look at history, guys. Of course a prophet's going to die in Jerusalem. What prophet died outside of Jerusalem? Jerusalem that names all their places after the prophets. Jerusalem that says, we are the city of the prophets. Jerusalem, the one that kills the prophets. He says, well, it can't be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Look at verse 34. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often, how often I wanted. If you were to close your eyes and if you didn't know this verse, how would you finish that verse? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the people that, the city that keeps killing the people I send to you. 
the city that's going to kill me. If we were to close our eyes and in our own flesh respond like we'd want to respond, how often I wanted to smash you like little bugs. How often I wanted to give you a taste of your own medicine. He says, how often I wanted to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks. Look at that nurturing side of Jesus as he is talking about his own murder. Friends, we can't talk this way without the Spirit of God. It makes no sense. To a fleshly mind, this is all contradiction. But to a spiritual mind, you begin, to, you begin to understand how you've been empowered to be different, to be like Jesus. And how Jesus is able to say, I know you're going to murder me and you're going to be wrong and you've murdered everybody I've sent your way. But all I've wanted to do is gather you. Just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Just for a minute, lest we start to get all haughty and think that Jerusalem is the problem. I'm sure Jesus could have said this about me and you. How often I wanted to gather you, you wouldn't have it. You didn't think you needed it. You didn't want anybody telling you what to do. You want to be the boss of your own life. You thought your way was better. Anybody here feel like a little chick that needs gathering by a mother hen? You tell somebody that's what you need and they go, no way. <laughs> if I went up to somebody and says, you know what you need? You need a mama hen to gather you. They'd be like, get away from me. What is wrong with you? I, no, I don't need that. But Jesus says, this is what you need. You wouldn't have it. And then he says, Behold, your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that time was when he came next week in the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry where they have a parade for him, and a few days later they kill him. But remember, it's not Jerusalem that throws the parade for Jesus. The Bible tells us that it's actually the disciples that have been following him and those that saw Lazarus get up from the grave. They went in front of him and they went behind him. And as soon as they approached Jerusalem, they get, began to get loud and say, Hosanna, Hosanna. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they cut off uh, branches from the, the trees and they took their coats off and they laid them at the foot of his donkey so that even the donkey would not have to touch the ground because this was the donkey that a king was riding on. But that wasn't Jerusalem because the people of Jerusalem said, who's this guy? And the ones that did know him already wanted to kill him. What's so poisonous about Jerusalem? Well, it's, it's not Jerusalem any more than it's any other place where there's a concentration of power. Kingdoms are clashing, right? Kingdoms clash. When the kingdom of God advances, it's going to advance against something. Nature abhors a vacuum. That means you can't just leave an empty space, something will fill it, right? If you take a bucket, you go to the lake, and you take a bucket of water and you pick it up, there is not a hole in the lake. It fills it, right? As soon as there's a vacuum of power, it's filled. And so the world is full of people controlling, of, of really, and the Bible tells us this, it's not really people. There's a spirit behind it. And the Bible calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. It doesn't mean that he rules the oxygen, but it means in the unseen realm, he is controlling things people don't know they're being controlled. In fact, it says before you knew Jesus, you were walking according to the course of this world, according to the course that was set out by Satan himself. Scripture calls him the God of this world, little g. In other words, he's the one that's kind of pulling strings. The whole system out there, this system that's based on greed and manipulation and, and uh, seizing of power and keeping it, is contrary to the kingdom of God. And so when the kingdom of God advances, it hits stuff. If, our, if the kingdom of God's not hitting anything, what in the world are we doing? So you wonder, why do the rulers rage? Why do the kings of the earth rage? Why do they take their stand against the Lord and against his Christ? Because they're threatened by him. Don't you realize that the governments and corporations and everybody that wants power in this world is threatened by the King of kings and Lord of lords? And yet, the King of kings and Lord of lords does not love the system, does not love the, 
the machine, but he loves the people. We shouldn't fall in love with the machine, the system. Now, I'm not trying to be like, hey, man, don't fall in love with the system, man. Like, but I'm being real with you because First John says, I know we could get all like, have you even, bro, have you even read? Like, you know, I'm not getting into that right now. But I'm telling you that John says in First John, don't love the world or the things in the world. And, and you go, well, didn't God so love the world that he gave his only son? God so loved the people in the world that he gave his own son. But he says, don't love the world or the things in the world. And he explains what they are. He says, all of those things are run by the lust of the flesh, doing what you feel like doing. The lust of the eyes, what do I, want to, what do I see that looks good to me? And the pride of life, that's how the world system runs. That's the Babylon system. And yet Jesus has come and he sent his church to be that force that pushes against and begins to rescue people and begins to snatch them out of the fire and begins to, begins to in fact, advance rapidly, as Jesus said. And here's what he's telling us. He's saying, guys, uh, I wanted to gather you, but you wouldn't have it. And it's, like I said, it's not that Jerusalem is in such an evil place. It's that it's in these places that somebody who wants power goes. This is the concentration of power in Judea, and that's where they've gone. Probably the most spiritual people aren't the ones that become the high priest or become the rulers of the synagogues. At this point, when the system's corrupt, then it becomes the people that know the right people, know where to exert influence. And so they've been so blinded that when God, who they've worshipped all their life, or at least said they were worshipping, comes in the flesh, they don't recognize him. And not only do they not recognize him, they viciously want him dead. His response, every time he steps back and looks at Jerusalem, every time he steps back and looks at these people, is he loves them. Here's his response here. Your house will be left desolate, and I say to you, you won't see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Go to Matthew 9, and I want you to see another moment where Jesus steps back and he looks. Because I'd like you to consider today, when you step back and you look at your city, when you step back and you look at your country, when you step back and you look at your province or wherever, your family, what do you see? What do you perceive? What's your response? We don't talk about enough how important that moment of perceiving and assessing is. Jesus said, before you start a project, you should count the cost. That moment when you look and you go, God, what are you calling me to do? God, what, what's in front of me? Lord, help me to see what you see. Help me to feel what you feel. Help me to speak like you speak. Because we could all get, we could all look around and see the reality and say, well, this is broken, this is messed up, but what in the world are you doing about it? Can I remind you about the Israelites that went into the promised land or the generation before them that didn't go into the promised land? God delivered them from Egypt with multiple signs and wonders, brought them through the Red Sea as if on dry land, delivered them from the hands of every enemy that was vastly, vastly outpacing them technologically. Archaeology tells us that wherever the Hebrew children went, technology went backwards. They didn't even know how to run a chariot. God told them when you come upon a chariot, hamstring the horses. Because they didn't know how to work them. So at least the enemy can't use them anymore. Now later on, God gave them technological advancements. The Bible tells us there was a king that God showed how to make weapons of war and siege towers and all our defense towers. God showed them how to do that. But when the, when the Israelites walk in, there are a bunch of people that have been in slavery. And somehow they survive every attack, and they thrive, and they survive in the wilderness. They have food and water. What in the world is happening? Water that comes out of a rock. Food that falls from the sky. But when they get to the promised land, Moses says, pick your best guy from each tribe. Twelve tribes, pick your best man. I want your smartest. I want your most full of faith. Pick your best guy. They each pick a representative to go spy out the land. Moses says, come back and tell us what kind of fortifications they have. Come and tell us about the land. Come and tell us where the cities are. So the 12 spies go into the land. 
and they come back and they bring back a cluster of grapes that takes two people to carry. Can you imagine? And they say, God was right. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's an abundant land. It's a pleasing land. But ten of them said, but here's the problem. Their cities are heavily fortified. They have armies. We saw giants. We're like grasshoppers in our sight. We must be grasshoppers in their sight. And only two came back and said, all of that's true. But if God gave us the land, then we get it. We should go. And, and those giants that you're so obsessed with right now, they'll be our prey. Hebrew, the Hebrew word for prey there means our food. I don't think they're actually going to eat the giants, but you know what I'm saying. Why, why did they use that phrase? Because the bad spies said the land will devour us. The people of God said if God goes, we'll devour the land. Right? So they all came back with the same info. I've said this to you a million times, but Josh, not a million, but a lot. Joshua and Caleb, Joshua and Caleb didn't come back and say, oh, I didn't see giants. Oh, I didn't see forts. They weren't living in denial. And God isn't asking you to be in denial about your nation, about your city, about your province. But you have got to get off the obsession with bad reports. So much so that you look at your nation and you just want to retreat. Or you get angry and say, well, let's all just go over here and, 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 and maybe we can dominate this small little area. What if you just say, God, this is messed up. But Lord, what do you see when you look? What do you see when you look at our city? What do you see when you look at my family? What do you see when you look at me? Let's not forget that God called those ten spies who gave you all the facts but didn't have any faith an evil report. I know friends. I've got friends that are addicted to evil reports. Addicted to it because it, it produces something in you. Rage, fear. Those are addicting emotions. You may hate them, but you're addicted to them. Do you know how many people hate click on articles? Rage click on a video? I just get fired up. I, I, have, ta I, have, I have talked with people, prayed with people who say, I'm angry all the time. Do you know what's going on? Yeah, I know what's going on. But I'll tell you, what you're listening to is just telling you, this is how evil it is, this is how broken it is, this is how fallen it is, and there's nothing we can do about it. Except get mad. But you need to mix, you need to get some faith here. Yeah. Yeah. Say, what, did God give up on the world? Why are we still here then? Why am I here? Just to, am I here just to get mad? Or am I here to make a difference? Jesus looks at Jerusalem, the city that's going to kill him, and he walks into the city. Paul was stoned to death. In one particular city, was stoned to death. They dragged him outside so he could rot on the outer streets outside the city. The disciples gathered around him, and I had, the Bible doesn't tell us what they did. I have to believe they prayed because that's what any disciple would do. And whether you, whether you believe that Paul was so near death they thought he was dead or you believe he was fully dead, it's pretty much the same miracle either way. He got up, and he walked back into the city. Do we walk into the city? When we look at it, do we say it's impossible? When we look at our, our, our provinces, our nation, our world, do we look and we go, it's just so messed up. I just not. Or do we say, Lord, in front of us lies a harvest. People that you died for. People that you love. People that you went to the cross for knowing, just like me, that I put you there. Do we walk into the city? Do we test the wind and weigh the odds? And ah, maybe I'll sit this one out. Jesus says, he looks, he was going through, this is Matthew 9, 35. He was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. I love that verse. And, and you should just stare at that verse for a few days. Every kind of disease. Every kind of sickness. We've bought into this lie that there are modern things that Jesus can't fix. Modern problems. Modern issues. 
modern mental diseases, modern physical diseases, modern societal ills that somehow Jesus has got no cure for. Don't you know it's the same Savior? Everything we're dealing with has a, has a root. It has that root that Jesus dealt with on the cross. Here he says he healed every kind of disease, every kind of sickness. So, so the, the author wants you to know nothing is left out here. And Jesus, <laughs> seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. Because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. That word distressed literally means to be harassed. Like distressed doesn't just mean I feel somewhat bothered and I don't know why. It means they were harassed. Dispirited literally means to be thrown down. And, and, and maybe in our minds, someone who's been harassed and thrown down is on the ground just going, just help me and I'll love you if you help me. But I found that people who've been hurt and people that have been abused and people that have been mistreated sometimes do the same thing to other people. It's not a Hollywood story where suddenly you just love somebody and everything changes. Sometimes you love people and they don't love you back. Sometimes you love people and they hate you even more for it. And yet, Jesus sees them and he recognizes the real issue here. He's not naive. They're distressed and they're dispirited. And here's why. They're like sheep without a shepherd. Do you know how much of our own distress and dispiriting, how much of our own oppression and depression has a result of us not only allowing ourselves to be shepherded by the great shepherd? We've sold, we've sold the society has sold the lie, and we've bought into it. But the greatest freedom you could ever have is to run your own life. Do your own thing. Find your own happiness. Right? What makes you feel good? What do you feel? Let's pursue that feeling. Feelings lie all the time. I mean, if we were led by feelings, what would we do to each other? Right? You, you on some level know that my feelings can't always be trusted. I can't just go up and, and do what I feel all the time. Can you imagine? We restrain ourselves. But, you know, in our society, we, we kind of restrain ourselves to the point of is it illegal or not. And that's the only time. <laughs> And then the moment we pass a law that it's okay, we're like, well, then, awesome. I'm in. See, we're not governed by morality. We're governed by laws. Not an inner, not an inner morality, not an inner righteousness, but merely a, a, um, an idea that we'll be punished if we don't. But laws can be good and laws can be bad, right? And so here... You know, how many times is, the, is, our own, is our own struggle, that inward battle, that, that war that you feel in your own soul, that you don't know why I am so miserable or I am so anxious or I am so, uh, I am so torn in too many directions, is because you are a sheep that's trying to find your way through the forest when the shepherd has made a path for you. And, and, and will show you, it'll lead you to quiet waters. And yes, you're going to be an individual to him. He's not trying to make you a clone. He's not trying to make you a robot. No, he, he has created you intricately and expertly. So he's going to love you. He's going to guide you. He's going to teach you. He's going to walk with you even through the valley of the shadow of death. When he sees these people, he recognizes the problem is that they are harassed and thrown down. They're like sheep without a shepherd. So what does he do? The other time he sees this is the time where he's trying to get away. He's, his cousin has died. He's trying to be alone with the father. He needs some time away from the crowds. And they go and they find him. And he shows up and he says the same thing. He recognized that they were like sheep without a shepherd, so he felt compassion for them and he taught them. Do you know that's one of the great ways that the shepherd shepherds us is to teach us? You have to allow yourself to be taught. And he says... This is what he sees. So he sees the people. So you imagine for a minute Jesus stepping back and looking at the people, distressed and dispirited. Now, maybe when someone's distressed and dispirited, they look like, I need help. Maybe when they're distressed and dispirited, they look angry. Like, don't you think the Pharisees that were trying to kill him, the Sadducees that were trying to kill him, the secularists that were trying to kill him, don't you think all those people were distressed and dispirited, harassed and thrown down? Don't you think they were oppressed by the devil themselves? 
So sometimes people say, I need help. Some people, some people go, I never need help. But when Jesus stepped back, he saw what the issue was. And he felt compassion for them. And this is what he says to the disciples. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. That's God's response to a broken world. It's not to say it's hopeless. God, were we born at the wrong time? Lord, I wish I, I was born in the wrong I wish. We all have this idea that if we were born in like 14th century Britain, we would thrive and not die in a few days. Right? I was born in the wrong time. I, I wish, man, I wish I was born same time as Clark Gable. Like, you, you would have the same issues then. You just think, because you watch all the movies, everybody's like singing in the rain or whatever. You just think it would be easy for you. God put you in this time. The Lord of all history saw this moment and said, this is where you fit the best. This is where I want you. And he made you just for this season. And he designed you just for this season. And so you look back and you look at the world and go, I'd rather live in a cave. I'd rather live in a cabin in the woods. But instead, can you look at the world and say this, the, the harvest. When you see the people that are going to kill you, make no mistake, in, in the next verse, Jesus says, in this verse, he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'd send laborers. And we're good at that, hey? I, this was my favorite prayer in, in junior high. When I saw someone that needed Jesus, I'd say, Lord, send a laborer into their path. <laughs> Father, send laborers into their path. I sit next to them in science. Send somebody, Lord. My locker's across the hall. Lord, anybody, anybody that could just speak to them. Lord, preferably someone that knows you, that loves you, someone that's got the gospel of Jesus. I don't know, God, whoever it needs to be. If you need to move someone here from China, move them from China, Lord. Right? Because I keep bumping into them, and they're full of just all sorts of weird stuff. So we use this prayer to get out of stuff. But Jesus says, pray that the Lord would send laborers, and in the next verse he goes, so guys, I'm sending you. How many times are you the answer to the prayer you prayed? Don't pray a prayer. You're not willing to pray with your feet as well. Pray with your mouth and pray with your feet. So here, <laughs> the next verse he says, so I'm sending you out. And he doesn't send them out naively. He says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. So he's gonna, they're going to kill some of you. They're going to put some of you in prison. They're going to they're gonna hate you. Okay, well, let's rethink this, right? They're going to they're gonna do this. But he says, everywhere you go, preach the kingdom of God. Everywhere you go, heal the sick. Everywhere you go, raise the dead. Everywhere you go, cast out evil spirits. Freely you've received, now freely give. See, you can't preach the kingdom in word only. The kingdom is preached in word and power. And that's the power to change. It's the power to be delivered. It's the power to be healed. It's the power, to, above all, to be saved. But it's power. Paul said, I've preached the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit with signs and wonders. He said, I have fully preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. From here to Iconium, I have fully preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. He didn't consider the gospel fully preached unless there were signs and wonders following the preaching of the word, unless there was a demonstration of power. In fact, he says to the, first, to the Corinthians, I said the first Corinthians, same group as the second Corinthians. He said to the Corinthians, he said to the Corinthians, I made up my mind not to come up with a fancy message for you. And to use fancy words, because I wanted you to have more faith in the power of God than in the wisdom of man. But I want you to see, this is what Jesus stands back and says, boy, this is a mess. Do you know what the solution is? Go into every village. Go into every town. This is a harvest field. You, you, don't, see, you don't see harvest where there's not love for that pe those people. It's not worth it. If your goal in life is to survive, it's not worth it. It's not worth it to go help anybody. It's not worth it to go preach the gospel. It's not worth it to be hated or despised or misunderstood. It's not worth it. But if you have the love of Jesus in you, and your heart's beating with his heart, you'll do anything. 
And you look at people like Jesus looked at a city that was going to kill them, and you love them, now you know. Now you know that his love is in you. Now you know that you're a believer. Now you know that you're born again. John says, here's a great, here's a great way to know that you're born again. Suddenly you have love you didn't have. Now, you can shut that off. You can silence it. You can still be saved and, and, and kind of ignore it. But I want to tell you, it's there. And the more you ignore it and the more you fight it, the more conflicted you'll be within your own life. I don't want to be that. So oh, I believe a good report or an evil report. A good report is not naive. I mean, we go to two extremes sometimes, don't we? One side of Christianity says the world is changing and that's good. We all change. Let's adapt the gospel to change with it. I believe we should be culturally relevant. I believe we should speak the language of the people of the time. But I'll tell you, God doesn't change. Language changes. Our way of communicating changes. Maybe even the way we do a church service changes. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So that doesn't change. So we don't say, Jesus didn't look at the city and say, I really want you to like me. What do I need to do? Do I need to stop talking about this? I, I talk a lot about hell. Should I not talk about hell anymore? Would you like me better if I didn't say that? Would you like me better if I, if I never challenged, you know, the power that's, that's, that's got control of this region? Would you like it better if I just never mentioned any of that? Would you like it better if I never challenged your belief systems or your doctrines? Sure, they'd like him better. Jesus didn't care if he was liked, right? Well, then on the flip side, you got people that are like, I'm never going to be liked, so I might as well just be mad about it. And I'm just, you know what? They hated Jesus, so they'll hate me. Smack, smack, smack. Well, they don't hate you because you're like, Jesus, they're mad at you because you're being a giant jerk to them. So, you know, if you buy the narrative that's us and them all the time, us and them, you never want to win them to Jesus. You see them as the problem. You see them as the obstacle and not the goal. They're the point. Jesus is the point above all points, but the point, the reason I'm here is for them. It's to glorify God by being a minister of reconciliation to them. Jesus didn't die for nothing. He died for something. That's them. Someone. Do you guys remember when Jonah... Jonah was sent to one of the most evil cities on the face of the planet. If you ever want to be horrified, study the Assyrians. I don't know why I said that to you. Like, who wants to be horrified? But if you, if you study the Assyrians, the Assyrians, like the stuff we have left from them is, is, is some of the things that we have left from their empire that's just been obliterated off the face of the planet. But what we have left of them is them bragging about how cruel they were, how mean they were. That was a point of pride for them. How they put down opposition, how they punished it, how they, how they made people pay. They were a cruel people. They worshipped a fish god, and so they often led their prisoners away with fish hooks in their mouths. They skinned people alive. They left people walled up in walls to die of suffocation. They did terrible things. And Jonah probably had friends that had been affected, maybe even himself. And God says, you're going to Nineveh to preach my gospel. And when you go, if they don't repent, I'll destroy the city. You tell them that. Jonah, first of all, doesn't want to go. He runs away. And then, of course, you know. God sends a storm. And this ship that he's on, trying to go the opposite direction, begins to uh, get to a point where it's going to be lost. And the people say, did somebody tick God off? We serve a lot of gods. Which one of them is, is mad right now? Jonah goes, it's me. I'm the guy. So you should probably throw me overboard. Okay, we'll throw him overboard. It's amazing how quickly they said yes to that. <laughs> Jonah gets thrown overboard. He gets swallowed by a, a, a great, all we know is it's something that lives in the water. I don't know what it looks like, but it swallows him. A great fish, the scripture says, a great sea creature swallows him. For three days he sits in the belly of that beast. That's a miracle. Somehow God made that work. And he goes, God, I'm sorry, I'll go. Thing spits him out on the shores. He walks to Nineveh smelling like fish, which is convenient because he's going to a people that worship a fish at God, right? So you've got their perfume on, <laughs> you know? Surely this man is from the gods. He smells like, he smells like God, you know? 
fish guts. And he goes and he preaches the gospel, not the gospel, he preaches repentance for the purpose of letting them refuse and be destroyed. He goes and finds a prime seat to watch the city be burned. And he can't wait. This is what I've been waiting for all my life. Thank you, God, for letting me be here when you totally massacre this, these people. Thank you for giving me a front row seat. And he waits and he waits. What he doesn't know is that the city of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, this great empire, the empire that, dis, that, that I mean, Babylon was terrified of these guys. The Persians, the Medes, the, this, the Assyrians ran the world at the time. And they repented. They didn't even know how to repent, so they said, even our animals aren't going to eat. We're all fasting. Even the babies don't get to eat. We're all fasting. And we're sorry. And God spared the city. And Jonah was so mad, he was suicidal. He said, Lord, just kill me now. Just, ah. And God sent this heat wave and gave him a plant that grew up, that gave him shade. And under that plant, he, he just loved this plant because any time he stepped out of the shade, it was like intense heat. And then God took the plant away. He said, Lord, why do you hate me so much? First, you don't commit genocide, and then you wreck my plant. And they're about equal for me right now, Lord. Lord, why, why do you do this? And God says, see how much you love that plant? How much do you love that plant? And you're so sad that it died. He goes, what about these people I made? He goes, I, I made, these are my people. I made these people. I created them. And he goes, they don't even know their left hand from their right. Doesn't that sound like what Jesus said? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. See, just because there are evil plans at work doesn't mean people really know what they're doing. Jesus said they don't know what they're doing. God says they don't know their left hand from the right. If they did, they wouldn't do it. That's compassion. God had compassion on the most evil city in the world and spared them. Jesus had compassion on the city that was about to murder him and went into the city. How much compassion do you have for Canada? How much compassion do you have for your government? Sometimes it's hard. I turn on the news, I'm not filled with compassion. Are you? Sometimes I'm angry. Sometimes I'm frustrated. Sometimes I'm saying, Lord, what in the world? But Lord, fill me with compassion. I don't want to be naive. I'm not going to go say, it's all roses and lollipops and rainbows. I need to know what's going on. But I need to have faith. The spies brought back a report. They all brought back the same facts. Two of them said, God can do this. It's not more facts you need, it's, it's more faith. And it's compassion, it's love. What would cause you to go into the city? Jesus says, the f this is a harvest field. And it's a, it's a dangerous harvest field, but it's a harvest field. Is that how you see the world around you? Future believers. <laughs> this person that you hate so much could be one of the, could be, the, could be a Saul of Tarsus. Could be a great evangelist. Could be a, a loving pastor. Could be, could be one of those people that prays for people all the time. You don't know. And if they did nothing for the Lord, if they died the next day, Jesus considered it enough that the thief on the cross said, remember me when you go into your kingdom. And he saved that man. So if nothing else, it's that Jesus died for them. That's enough. Not based on what they'll do in the future, not based on what little nugget of gold they might have in their heart, but just based on the fact that Jesus died for them. That's enough for me to love you. I'm not naive. I'm not thinking, well, oh, they, they're probably fine. You know, the, the world around us is fine. It doesn't need to change. The world needs to change. It's broken, seemingly beyond repair. In fact, there's a reason that the Bible says the only way this ends is that God melts all the stuff down to its elements, that the systems of the world won't be around when he creates a new heaven and a new earth. But I'll tell you the people, he loves them. I don't want the love of the Father working in me. I want it working in you. What do you see when you look at the world? When you step back and you look, what do you see? Because it's in those moments the heart of Jesus really comes out.
I would trust today that for, for just something practical, you can go home with. Recognize in yourself, we're out of fear. There's a lot of release valves for fear. Anger is a release valve for fear. Hate is a release valve for fear. Recognize the fear in ourselves. The fear that we're going in the wrong direction. Sure. The fear that what does this mean for my child that's got to grow up in this world. I think about that all the time. I've got a 10-year-old son. I've got a 10-year-old son, and when I look and I go, I almost feel bad sometimes. If I'm not in faith, I start to say, Moses, I, I'm sorry for bringing you into this world right now. I've never said that to him, but I've thought it. That's not faith. Because God saw Moses before Moses was ever born and said, Moses, the world needs you. And I'm sending you. And you're going to carry my love. You're going to carry the gospel. You're going to carry my power. And they need someone like you at this time. And your kids, the world needs them. Those kids downstairs, don't think, well, we did them a disservice by letting them get born. If you've let the enemy sell you that lie, call it out for what it is. It's fear. It's not faith. You begin to say, God called us for such a time as this. That's what, that's what Esther's uncle said, Mordecai. Esther said there's a plan to, to wipe us all out. She wasn't lying. She wasn't buying into a conspiracy theory. It was true. Mordecai overheard it. He said, they're going to wipe you all out. But he said, Esther, perhaps you've been brought into the kingdom. And we sanctify that. In, oh, we Christians, we talk about the kingdom. We, we talk about the kingdom of God. Maybe we've been brought into the kingdom. You know what kingdom he's talking about? The Persian kingdom. The bad guys in the, those movies. You know, the, the guys... They were a decent empire at times, but the guys that, that, that dominated and conquered the world, that tried to overthrow the Greek empire, I mean, these were, or the Greek city-states, these were not great people. But perhaps you've been brought into the kingdom for such a time as this. Perhaps you've been born into Canada for such a time as this. Perhaps you've been born into Lloydminster. Perhaps you've been brought into your family for such a time as this. Perhaps you're working in the oil field for such a time as this. Perhaps you are working in the grocery store at Tim Hortons for such a time as this. Perhaps you're a doctor in this hospital for such a time as this. Whatever you are, perhaps you, you have been brought into, the, into the, uh, the, the senior care home for such a time as this. Whatever it is, for such a time as this, the harvest is plentiful. Let's get out there. When I look back, what do I see? Lord, I want to see what you see. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray for that right now. Lord, what do you see? What do you see? Lord, what do you see? God said to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, what do you see? Jeremiah said, I see a pot boiling. Before that, he said, I see an almond tree. And the Lord said to him, you've seen well. You've seen well. And then began to describe why he showed Jeremiah those things. But I want you to hear that phrase, you've seen well. What do you see? God's asking you today, what do you see? You may say, well, what I see is based on What's in front of me? No, it's not. Because they're seeing something, just like all 12 spies saw the same thing. But they perceived different things. Ten brought back an evil report. Two brought back a good report. In Deuteronomy 1, the people sat in their tent saying, God hates us. And they said, our brothers made our hearts melt. Our brothers made our hearts melt. Is there any coincidence that when Jesus said, in the world, you'll have trouble? In fact, in the world, they're going to persecute you. They'll throw you in prison. They'll kill some of you. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Cheer up. That's Jesus saying, this is, that's what you see, but this is how you should perceive it. Perceive it in the light of the fact that I've overcome the world. Cheer up. Cheer up. I've overcome the world. Or in another place, he says, take heart. The Israelites said, our brothers brought back a report that made our hearts melt. What are we saying to each other at lunch? What are we saying to each other around the supper table at coffee? 
Are we making our hearts melt or are we giving each other courage? Are we speaking faith or fear? All the facts are all the same. But how do you perceive those facts? In light of what God is doing, in light of what Jesus has done, or in light of what you can do? In light of your own fears, in light of your own concerns, in light of your own doubts? Friends, we all got them. But I'm praying that the faith would be louder than the fear. The cross would be louder than the sin. The grace would abound. Where sin is abounded, grace would much more abound. And the fields, as Jesus said to his disciples, look up. Look to the fields. They're ready for harvest. How many times has Jesus had to say to you, look up. Look at the fields. Get off Facebook for a minute, unless Facebook is your mission field. Awesome. But if it's just a place you're going to complain, get off of it and look at the fields. They're ready. Lord, we want to see what you see. I want to know what you, I want, I want to perceive it like you perceive it. Lord, today I choose, my brothers and sisters are with us. We choose to lay our fears the foot of your cross to pick up your courage take courage when all these things happen Jesus said to his disciples look up for your redemption is coming now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed the night is almost gone the day is at hand therefore put on the armor of light You know what the armor of light is? It's a few verses before he says, love one another. Do this knowing the time. Then he goes on and says, the night is almost gone, the day is at hand. Knowing the time, let's begin to act like Jesus. And even if you know the city's going to hate you, walk into the city and love them. Walk into the city and preach the gospel. Walk into the city and heal the sick. Walk in the city and cast out evil spirits. Walk into the city and watch the city change. I want to remind you that the same city that cried out, let his blood be on our heads and the heads of our children. When Pontius Pilate said, this is an innocent man, they said, kill him anyways, and and we're taking the blame. Let his blood be on our heads and our kids' heads. They cursed their own children. But only a few weeks later on the day of Pentecost, The church stood in front of the same city that killed Jesus. And Peter declared, the promise of the Spirit is for you and for your children. God reversed the curse into a blessing. Where we cursed ourselves and our kids, God has called a blessing on you and your kids. For all those that will believe on His name. For all those that will call upon the name of the Lord. Today is the day of salvation.